Our scripture reading this morning is Romans 8, 18 through 30. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is God's word. Thank you for that uh, scripture reading, Kathy. And thank you for those of you who proclaimed your faith in baptism this morning. Emma, Claire, Haston, and Caroline, what a joy. It is an amazing experience to see those who take that step of faith, particularly at such a young age. And thank you very much for your clear proclamation of your faith and confidence in the Lord. Uh, for Mary Alice and me, what a joy to always be back through here at First Evan in Memphis. We have such wonderful and many, many memories of our times here with you at First Evan. Uh, we have a long-standing relationship with the church going back to when my father came here as your senior pastor in 1969. At that period of time, the church was located over on Union Avenue Extended. And I'll never forget, one of my favorite spots in the auditorium was over on the side. That auditorium had pews in the middle, and then in sort of Episcopalian style, it had seating that faced the congregation, but on each side, going all the way to the back of the congregation. And I always enjoyed sitting on the side because it gave me a telescopic view of those who were falling asleep during my father's messages. <laughs> And then I remember standing in the foyer under the scaffolding as this uh, magnificent auditorium was going up in the 1980s. I remember my youngest son running up the aisle as we were back on a homestay, and he fell and 
opened uh, his eye, opened the, his head just above his eye on that pew right back there. I'll never forget that. And for the medical doctor, I don't remember his name, who took care of him at the time. But in any case, what a joy it is to have these memories and to sense that we are family. And we really are, even though we have been distanced from you over the years. Uh, in Portland, in France, and Belgium, nevertheless, we have always sensed that First Evan is our home church family. And it is a joy to be able to share this moment with you this morning. Father, we ask you to open our eyes and open our hearts to what you have to say to us. And may the spirit of all consolation bring comfort and conviction and encouragement as needed. We ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. No doubt that in a congregation such as this, there are some of you if not many of you this morning who are facing intense suffering in your life. It may be the diagnosis of a fatal illness. It may be the loss of a job. It may be a wayward child. Or possibly even an addiction over which you seem to have little control, either in your own life or the life of a loved one. You know, the scriptures have a lot to say about suffering. Jesus reminds us, in this world, you will have trouble. Take heart. I have overcome the world. And the Apostle Paul tells us, for it has been granted unto you not only to believe in Jesus Christ, but also to suffer for his sake. And the Apostle Peter reminds us, Oh, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal through which you are passing. In all of our lives, there are fiery ordeals, difficult circumstances, periods of intense suffering. If you're not going through that now, you have certainly gone through it in the past or most certainly will in the future. Suffering is not an elective in life. It is a required course, particularly for you and I who name the name of Jesus Christ, the man of sufferings. Indeed, the upward path of patient endurance through suffering is long and arduous. It's really not made for sprinters who, with a burst of energy, smash records and impress crowds. It, it's rather more like the legendary heartbreak hill of the Boston Marathon. You know, what makes that iconic landmark so notable is not so much its height, but the fact that world-class runners hit the mark at mile 19. Heartbreak is the last and most grueling of four hills starting at the infamous mile 17. At that point, the depleted glycogen in the runner's muscles is replaced with lactic acid, a phenomenon that tests to the very core the competitor's strength and endurance. 
But it's really not so much the feeling of total cardiorespiratory exhaustion that makes Heartbreak Hill so difficult. It was in 1937 that runner Ellison Tarzan Brown, as they called him, set a blistering unequaled pace during the first 20 miles of the Boston Marathon. But then on the last hill, fellow runner Johnny Kelly wiped out a half-mile deficit to catch Brown, sarcastically patting him on the back as he glided into the lead. And the mocking gesture only served to fuel Brown's adrenaline, enabling him to surge past Johnny Kelly and win in record time. The loss broke Kelly's heart and gave rise to the naming of Heartbreak Hill. While our races in life differ, no one, no one can avoid sooner or later reaching Heartbreak Hill. The sage Solomon puts it this way in Proverbs 18, 14. The human spirit can endure a sick body, but who can bear a crushed spirit? It's one thing to say my head aches. It's quite another to say my heart aches. But whether it's a headache or whether it's a heartache, we need God's perspective on suffering. We need insight into the out of sight. One verse that my wife and I have tenaciously clung to since the accidental death of our firstborn, Jonathan, at the young age of 22 in South Korea, is Romans 8, verse 28. I'm sure that many of you can cite that verse by heart. In fact, I met one of the Fraser boys again this morning. We were talking about it. Yes, that was my mother's favorite verse. I've known it for years, Romans 8, 28, in the old King James Version. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who were called according to his purpose. It was R.A. Torrey in the early 1900s who was a co-evangelist with D.L. Moody, the founder of Moody Bible Institute, who called this verse a soft pillow for a tired heart. And those who are going by Heartbreak Hill in life need a soft pillow. Words of assurance from the word of God. While bringing a degree of comfort to our own hearts, this verse, quite frankly, also brought probing questions to my own mind. Uh, one prominent preacher in World War II said that Romans 8.28 is one of the hardest verses in the Bible to believe, and understandably so. Given the murder of more than 6 million Jews and 5 million prisoners of war, how do we understand that in light of Romans 8.28? Certainly the Old Testament patriarch, Jacob, would have had a hard time understanding it. Believing Joseph to be dead, Simeon to be held hostage, and now his youngest son, 
being dragged off as a guarantee of their arrival in Egypt, Jacob cries out in Genesis 42, 36, all these things are against me, not for me. Confronted by the circumstances in your life today, maybe you feel that way. This verse is not only difficult to believe, quite frankly, as I spent a lot of time meditating on this verse following the passing of our firstborn, I found it difficult to understand. What do I mean by that? Well, obviously, we are to know something, and we know that all things work together for good. But the diverse translations of the verse leave us in doubt as to exactly what we are to know. Beyond the King James Version, here are three other popular translations of this verse. We'll put them up on the screen for you. The ESV, which we often use here at First Evan, says this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Here's the New American Standard Bible. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. And here's the New International Version. We know that in all things, God works for the good. And so I ask myself, are impersonal things working together for good? Or is God causing all things to work together for good? Or is God working in and among impersonal things? Or is there another way to understand this verse? And if so, what are the implications for your life and mine as we face moments of intense suffering? It's very clear as we look at the context of Romans 8 verse 28 that there are several things we are to know. Not only are we to know what Romans 8 verse 28 says, but the Apostle Paul tells us in verse 22 that we are to know something else. Notice, verse 22 says this, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Without a doubt, we live in a world of intense suffering. I'd like to ask this morning, how many fathers do we have in the congregation? Would you raise your hand? A lot of you. How many of you were present during the birth of your children? In the labor and delivery. A few less, but some of you were there. You know, admittedly, I, I was with Mary Alice for the birth of all four of our children. But I have to admit, I know very, very little of the cramping, aching, throbbing, pressing, shooting pain that a woman goes through as she gives birth. And that's what the Apostle Paul compares the suffering in creation to, the pains of childbirth, unbearable, unbelievable. I read the other day that in China, because some women were complaining that their husbands lacked sympathy 
when it came to the birth of their children, that one hospital set up a particular unit where these husbands could come and actually be uh, shocked with electric shock treatments in order that they could better sympathize with their wives. My daughter, Rebecca, who lives in Nashville, and here's a picture of her. Those of you who knew my mother, by the way, you know well she was always pulling out pictures of family. Well, she didn't have the advantage that I have. I can just, with a click, show all of you at once. Here's our daughter, Rebecca, our oldest daughter, and she just gave birth to our fifth grandchild, Madeline Grace. You know what Rebecca told me the other day? She said, Dad, you know, I've given birth to four of our five children without an epidural, without any kind of medication. This time, also, I gave natural birth. I was in labor and delivery due to a few complications for two weeks. I was the only one screaming. It was silent throughout the entire labor and delivery for everybody else was on medication. Yes, we live in a world of intense suffering, and the Apostle Paul tells us several things about this. First of all, he tells us all of creation suffers, beginning in verse 19. You see, the groaning of creation is simply a sign, a symptom of the underlying illness. And that underlying illness is called evil. And sin, which is the manifestation of evil in moral creatures. Our postmodern world says that our main problem today is that of suffering. The biblical perspective is that evil and sin are the main problem, and it is precisely evil and sin that has led to the intense suffering that you and I experience in life. Sin is malignant. It is not benign. Once implanted, it relentlessly pervades all that it touches. Like a climber on a large mountain climbing up, he dislodges one small pebble that begins to roll down the hill and progressively picks up other pebbles and then rocks and eventually boulders, resulting in a massive avalanche. So the first man's sin set off a little pebble of drastic consequences in this world. Sin, an avalanche of evil and suffering that has pervaded the entire universe and touches your life and mine. Massive earthquakes in Morocco or Afghanistan, devastating hurricanes in Florida, severe famines in sub-Saharan Africa. I read the other day that this year, 2023, there have already been 23 separate billion-dollar natural disasters in the world more than ever in recorded history. But the Apostle Paul tells us in this passage that the consequences of sin and evil bringing such suffering in our lives have touched not only creation, but even you and me, our lives as believers. He says in verse 23, and, and not only so, but we ourselves... We who have the first fruits of the Spirit, 
In other words, we who love God, Romans 8, 28. In other words, we who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8, 29. We who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8 and verse 1. We who are blessed with all spiritual blessings, Ephesians chapter 1. Yes, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. You and I are not exempt from the disappointing and devastating effects of sin that have pervaded the universe. And some of these things, these devastating effects, are actually specifically mentioned within this context in verse 35. Look in your Bible. Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, sword. And in our day, we could add to that list the tragic drowning of a child, the waywardness of a son or daughter, the diagnosis of brain cancer in a family member, the terror and terrorism present in the Middle East today, the events of 9-11. We've all been thinking a lot about 9-11 recently as it just recently happened, or the memorial of it recently happened, several weeks ago. Have you ever asked yourself how many believers were on that flight, United Flight 93? I know there was at least one, a graduate of Wheaton College. Have you ever asked yourself how many were sitting in an office chair in the North Tower as American Airlines Flight 11 slammed into that building and engulfed in flames so many lives. How about those who had sons and daughters and spouses who died in that horrendous, unforgettable event? How does all of that play into a verse like Romans 8:28? Have you thought about that? Solomon proclaims in Ecclesiastes 2.17, So I loathed life because what happens on earth seems so awful to me. Yes, we live in a world of intense suffering. All creation groans. We as believers groan. That's the bad news. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. In this world of intense suffering and heartbreak, God works with you and me to bring about good in this life and glory in the next. Now, some of you might be wondering, well, David, that is not what my Bible says. Where do you get that particular translation of Romans 8, 28? Let me explain. Again, you see on the screen the three popular translations and fairly good translations of Romans 8.28 that we've already looked at. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good 
Or we know that God causes all things to work together for good. Or we know that in all things, God works for good. Again, we have to ask, are things working? Is God working things or is God working in things? And while all three of these translations are grammatically possible, I suggest that they may not be preferable. In a moment, I'll explain why, but first consider this. Uh, following the events, the murderous events of 9-11, one well-known, respected theologian basing his thoughts on Romans 8:28, said that God, in fact, did cause the murderous events of September 9-11, just as he also brought about the Holocaust and the Nazis' brutality at Auschwitz. Just how God did this without compromising his own holiness and negating human responsibility is left up to mystery. And so some conclude that such a perspective of God's sovereignty or more specifically, such a view of Romans 8.28 should actually increase our trust in God's providential care in our lives. It has actually given rise to some of the trite answers that are given to individuals when they are trying to comfort others in suffering. Like one who might look at parents of a child who took his own life and say, you know, God intended this to build your character. Wrong answer. Wrong counsel. Or providence right straight with crooked lines. Let me suggest to you this morning that there is another translation of this verse, as I mentioned, that I find preferable. It's actually found in your New International Version, but it's down in the notes. And it is also the preferred reading of the Revised Standard Version, and it reads like this. We know that in all things, God works together with those who love Him to bring about what is good with those called according to His purpose. Now, why would I prefer this particular translation? Well, it's not simply because I find it easier to grasp and better understand God's wise, matchless, sovereign ways of working with the events of history. But also, there are some grammatical reasons that I prefer it. You know, the word work together actually translates a word in the New Testament from which we get our word synergy. What is synergy? Well, we know that synergy is essentially uh, the interaction or cooperation of two or more individuals or things that produce a combined effect greater than the sum of the parts. Put simply, synergy is one plus one equals now, obviously, when it comes to God and you and me, that little illustration is fairly irrelevant. God does not need you and me. But God has chosen to work in and through you and me for good in this life 
and glory in the next. In the vast majority of cases where this little word translated work together is found, it almost always, without exception, refers to God working with you and me, and not primarily with things or circumstances, though he does do that. Here it is a matter of emphasis. Notice this example in Mark 16 and verse 20. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord, there's our word, worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 9, for we are co-workers together with God in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 1, Here's our word again. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. And so when we interpret Romans 8.28 in light of the way that this word translated work together is used consistently throughout the New Testament, and there are more than 40 examples of that usage, we conclude that the emphasis is not as much on God working with impersonal things and circumstances, though he does do that, nor with God working in and through impersonal things and circumstances, though he does do that. But get this, the emphasis is on God working personally, intentionally, dynamically, and lovingly with you and me in whatever circumstances we face in life, Good times and bad times, times of joy and times of intense suffering. Our personal God is engaged with us in order to bring out good, bring about good in this life, in our lives, in the lives of others, and glory in the next. It was the fourth century church father, Athanasius of Alexandria, who put it this way, speaking of this very verse, to all who choose the good, God works with them for the good. And so we're left with the question, well, just what is that good? What is the good that God wants to produce in your life, in my life, in the lives of those around us? Well, the answer is found right here in the context. Verse 28, who have been called according to his purpose. And what is that purpose? The answer is found in verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ. So you see, the focus is not so much on God working in things, but God working in us, you and me. What happens in us becomes more important than what happens to us. In that way, every trial of life can be transformed as we cooperate with God by the power of His Holy Spirit can be transformed into testimony. You and I cannot count on God to give us a relatively easy 
and comfortable, stress-free life. What we can do is we can count on God to work with us in our suffering, in our horror, in our pain, in our agony at times, through loss and difficulty, whatever it is. We can count on Him to work with us to bring about good in this life and glory in the next. That seems to be what Paul is saying in verse 18, is it not? He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. What is glory? Oh, glory is simply the, the splendid manifestation of the character and of the attributes of God. Glory, simply put, is the conclusion of His story in our lives. That's why Paul can say in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 3, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him, where? In glory. So let us not waste our sorrows. Whatever difficulty you are passing through right now, let us not waste our sorrows. Every sorrow, every tear, every heartache, every fear, as we cooperate with God's redemptive design in and through our lives, can result in good in this life and glory in the next. And get this, even if you and I never see the good outcome this side of heaven, we know, we know for sure that it will result in glory in the next. Helen Rosevere came and spoke to the women at what was at that time called Mid-South Bible College. Mary Alice was living in the dorm. Helen Rosevere had just left the Belgian Congo. This was in about 1976. She had been a missionary there from 1954 up until 1975. She actually came to know Christ during a Bible conference where Dr. Graham Scroggie was preaching, a well-known author and pastor. She went up to him after he spoke, and she told him of her newfound faith. He took her Bible, and he opened it up, and he wrote in her Bible, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10, I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his suffering, being made conformable to him in his death. Graham Scroggie, Graham Scroggie, as he took her Bible, he wrote Philippians 3.10, and he said this to Helen Roosevelt. Tonight, Helen, you've entered into the first part of that verse, that I may know him, he told her. But this is only the beginning. Only the beginning. There's a long road ahead. My prayer for you is that you will go on through the verse to know the power of his resurrection as you go out to serve him. And then, looking her straight in the eye, he said, and also, one day, perhaps, the fellowship of his sufferings. Well, Helen Roosevelt left for the Belgian Congo. 
strong in faith, confident in trust. And then she encountered the uprising of 1964, during which time Helen Rosevere, as a young lady, was assaulted, brutally beaten, and raped by the insurgents. Now, how do you deal with that? How do you take that experience and harmonize it with Romans 8.28? Well, I would suggest to you that Helen Rosevere is a model example of one who was working with God and she herself, God was working with her through her trust and faith and confidence in order to bring about good. And that good did come about the good of encouraging others that were going through suffering, the good of communicating her faith, the good of being a living testimony of God's faithfulness, even in spite of unbelievable, horrific events that took place in her experience. She later wrote this in life, I must ask myself a question as if it came directly from the Lord. Can you thank me for trusting you with this experience, even if I never tell you why? Even if I never tell you why? Yes, we can know that as God works with us, even if we never see tangibly the good in this life, it will result in glory in the next. Certainly one of the best examples of Romans 8.28 is the Old Testament patriarch, Joseph. You know the story, it's recounted in Genesis 37 to 50. Jacob, remember his dad? He was the one who said, all these things are against me. But both Jacob and Joseph, without the additional revelation of Romans 8:28, they had insight into the out of sight. A multitude of things, events, call them coincidences, accidents, had to happen in order for Joseph to actually end up being a prince in Egypt and God's people coming down into Egypt according to God's good plan. You know, when Jacob decided to send Joseph to seek out his brothers who were tending their sheep, Jacob believed that the sons were in Shechem. If he had known that they were in Dothan, much further away, he probably would never have sent Joseph. And then when Joseph arrived in Shechem, he just happened to come upon a stranger who knew where his brothers were. But the strangers knew that because he, he just happened to overhear a conversation of men speaking in a field. Then the brothers plotted to kill Joseph, but Reuben intervened. However, Reuben was away when the brothers had thrown him into a pit and the Egyptian traders came by and Joseph was sold into slavery. Once in Egypt, he was enticed by Pharaoh's wife, accused by the royal palace guard, ended up in prison, but there he met Pharaoh's cupbearer. He interpreted the dream, which actually led to Joseph's reinstatement as an attendant in the Egyptian government and paved the way for the arrival of Jacob's family in Egypt. Get this, in his infinite, matchless, sovereign wisdom, God knew not only what was, what could be, 
what might be, what would be, depending on the free choices of all of the individuals involved, Joseph and the family members, and God was always at work, as He is in our lives, to maximize good and minimize evil. And when the brothers finally confess their wrongs, Joseph redirects the focus from their sin to God's good design. What does he tell them? Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me. God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Now, I know there's a class that is taking place here soon, and I saw somewhere in the bulletin that you're actually going to study the question, did God create evil? <laughs> well, let me ask you, as it relates to Joseph and his brothers, did God cause the evil in the brothers' hearts, as some might say? I believe the Bible responds with a resounding no. The evil intentions of Joseph's brothers were evil precisely because they were not according to the will of God. God is always at work to bring good out of evil. But our righteous, holy God is never, as the ultimate cause, working the evil out of which he brings good. Actually, the words of Joseph could be better interpreted this way. You had thought evil. God thought it for good. In his matchless sovereign wisdom, God was able to anticipate every response, every motive, every decision in the hearts of Joseph's brothers. As a sovereign, all-wise God, he was able to take their evil intentions and turn evil back on itself by accomplishing his good and perfect will. And he will do exactly the same in your life and in mine. In that way, the wrath of man, with all of its consequential tragedy in this suffering world, can be turned back to the praise and glory of Jesus Christ. Ah, Joseph's brothers intended evil, his suffering for evil, but God used it for good. Satan intended Job's suffering for evil, God used it for good. Satan intended Paul's suffering for evil, that thorn in the flesh, God used it for good. Our adversary intends your suffering for evil God will use it for good to the degree that you make yourself available. You who love God, we who love God, as we make ourselves available to the outworking of God's redemptive and sanctifying work in our lives. How do we do that? I would suggest through prayer. The first step is prayer. In this very passage in Romans chapter 8, Jesus Christ is interceding for you and for me. Think of it. Imagine yourself in the moment of intense suffering in your life. How would you feel if you knew that Jesus Christ was in the room next door praying for you? Well, the news is even better than that. He is. In fact, he's with you. He is constantly interceding for each one of us, according to Romans 8, verse 34. And more than that, according to Romans 8, 26 and 27, the Spirit of God is 
groaning in intercession for you and me. Did you notice that in this passage? All of creation groans, you and I groan, but the good news is the Spirit of God groans with us and in us as He intercedes. And as you and I join our prayers with those of the Holy Spirit, God brings comfort and guidance and wisdom in every difficult trial of life. A.W. Tozer once said, God is good to all in some ways. He is good to some in all ways. God is good to all in some ways. He gives rain from heaven and food to eat. But God is good to some, you and me who love God, in all ways. And so in the crucible of suffering, you and I can be assured that God, according to Romans 8.28, is working with us to bring about good in this life and glory in the next. Whatever the circumstances, be they bitter or sweet, bright or dark, good or bad, happy or sad, you and I, by God's grace, we can persevere through the tears and the heartaches, through the hurts, the disappointments, through the horrors and the nightmares, through the losses and the sleepless nights. And at the end of the day, we can stand firm on the top of Heartbreak Hill and we can boldly declare, in all these things, I am more than a conqueror through him. Jesus Christ, who loves me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the reminder of your word, the assurance that it gives to our hearts. Thank you for the way you so compassionately and intimately and personally work with us in whatever trial, difficulty we face in life. We pray that you would, as we move out from here, be agents of your grace and compassion to others in their time of sorrow and need. And may it all resound to the glory and praise of Christ, we ask it. Amen.